I'll talk about the second factor of the seven factors of enlightenment. And it's called investigation into Dhammas or into Dhamma. And our scholars can't agree whether that means investigation into the teaching of the Buddha or investigation into phenomena. I'm sure for my, where I stand, it means investigation into phenomena. We have in Pali several words that are the same word with different meanings. One of them is Dhamma. In English we try to get around it by spelling it sometimes with a capital D and sometimes with a small d. When it's spelled with a capital D, we mean the teaching of the Buddha, Dhamma. When it's spelled with a small d, we mean phenomena. So when you see that in a book, maybe that is helpful. And it's usually in English, we put an S at the end to make a plural out of it, because there's not just one phenomena, there are several. So investigation into Dhammas, into the phenomena. Now, that is the second factor of enlightenment. When it becomes a factor of enlightenment, it has been perfected. When it is a practice, it means that we can work at it to perfect it. When we talk about the phenomena, we mean three things. Anicca dukkanata, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness substancelessness. These are the three characteristics of all that exists according to the Buddha's teaching. Now if we penetrate one of them, we penetrate all three because they are interconnected. We have different ways of penetrating into absolute reality and it is very important that we realize that there are two levels of discussion, two levels of talking about the Buddha's teaching. One level is in the relative reality and one level is the absolute reality. Now this is often misunderstood and I'll explain it just briefly. In the relative reality, I want to meditate. I want to have loving kindness and compassion. I want to become a more pure person. I want to gain insight. That's on the relative reality level on which we have to operate because that's where we're at. But when we investigate and try to perfect this insight into something which goes beyond the I, then we're talking about an absolute reality that we're trying to gain access to. We're trying to get access to an absolute reality. Although we are standing firmly embedded in this relative reality, there's no reason why we can't step into something different by transcending, at least momentarily, that which moves us, which is the relativity of I, me, and mine. These three phenomena and these three characteristics are 
the qualities which we find in everything. There's nothing that doesn't have those three characteristics. And of course, the most important phenomena that we have to investigate is ourselves. Because even if we investigate anything at all and don't realize that the same applies to us, we are no wiser than before. We may know a lot more, but we haven't gained wisdom. It is very interesting to know that just a few years ago, scientists in America made some experiments in what they call a bubble chamber, the type of laboratory in which they can have all their um, particles, that the atomic particles end smaller than that, shown, they can see them. And as they were making this experiment, which I cannot explain in detail, all I know is the result of it, they realized that all the particles that existed anywhere at all were constantly falling apart and coming back together again. That they didn't have a core substance which was permanent. That it was a totally movable universe in which nothing remained. Now, certainly they became wiser because of that. They had an, an understanding of what was happening in the universe. But because they didn't include themselves in this constant movement, but remained the observer, they didn't gain any different view which would have brought them a step nearer to enlightenment. They remained scientists which were observing. And what they were observing was exactly what the Buddha talked about two and a half thousand years ago, without a bubble chamber, because he experienced it and was able to verbalize it. He experienced the fact that, because of his very perfect mindfulness and attention, that there was nothing which had a core substance in himself. And from that, the inference was, of course, that there's no core substance in anything else. Everything is falling apart and coming back together again. And that the scientists have now proven the Buddha right really makes no difference to any one of us. We still have to experience it in order for it to make any difference. And this is, of course, the um, tragedy for the scientists. Some of them are getting an inkling that there's something amiss with that and the worldview that they're holding, and they're getting a little bit of a shift. Now, that shift of our view can come to us, each one of us, through the practice of meditation. But even then, meditation is the means. It's not the end. The means of getting the mind into such a condition that it will actually let go of the relativity in which we live and have a complete access, an open space where this reality can be seen, this absoluteness where there is no particular person.
These three characteristics of Anicca Dukkanatta all have their own have their own um, signs in which they appear to us when we see them correctly. Now, if we look at the impermanence of everything and actually get an inkling of it, what it means, that door through which we go, the door to liberation, is called the signless liberation, which means that all phenomena in the whole of the universe no longer has significance because all of them are falling apart and coming back together again. And they're all particles. They do not have the significance anymore that, they, that we used to give them. Now, what does that mean to us in our daily life? Well, you can't look at your husband or wife or your children and say, well, they're just particles falling apart and coming back together again, can you? But we can get an inkling of this impermanence when we can see the complete change in a person's exterior, in their looks, over the years. We can see and we can get an inkling of impermanence when we can watch our own thoughts and our own feelings. We see a complete impermanence when those whom we love and want to keep die or disappear. And when we see it as a tragedy, then we are pushing and rejecting reality. Because reality is that everything that has arisen must disappear. And when we do not see that as the truth, then of course we have suffering from it. Because we are rejecting the truth. We want to get away from the truth. And so we suffer. And the suffering, the dukkha, has as its door through liberation non-craving, which means in this instance, in absolute reality instance, it means that we no longer want to change the way things are. We do not crave for anything different. The way things are, that's the way they are. Now, to be absolutely contented, not indifferent, but absolutely contented, with the way things are, it takes a bit of doing. They just are as they are. And when, they, when that has been accepted within, totally and completely through insight, not through wanting, if we want to accept it, that's again dukkha because we can't do it. But through insight, if we can accept that through insight, then naturally all suffering is gone because everything happens the way it happens. That does not mean that we become inactive. The Buddha was not a teacher of inactivity. He was a teacher of non-craving, but not of inactivity. He himself taught for 45 years, every single day of his life, even when he was ill. He was still teaching on his deathbed. A last disciple came to him when he was on his deathbed. And he too understood the teaching. So it's not inactivity which results. What results from it in the case of the Buddha, when seeing reality and no longer wanting to change it, 
is compassion with everyone who doesn't see it that way and therefore is suffering. Now, sometimes, naturally, we do get what we want and then we're not suffering. But, unfortunately, underneath it all, we are still suffering because after having got what we wanted, we already have an inkling of the fact that we may not be able to keep it. Because in the past, we also couldn't keep what we wanted. So maybe this time we also can't keep what we, what we got. And also, that understanding creates the fear of losing that which we just got and wanted and want to keep. So there is no peacefulness in that. Although there's a certain um, happiness in having got what one wanted, the peacefulness is lacking because the fear of loss is there and the knowledge of the possibility of loss is there because we are already sensitive enough to know that whatever we've had before has changed or disappeared. So while we are still wanting to change things and not accept them the way they are, in other words, we want to keep the people that are dear to us, we do not want to allow them to disappear, we want to keep the things that are dear to us, in fact, we want to get more of them, and we still want to be different from what the way we are. In that instance, we're still having a lot of unsatisfactory feelings within because we're reaching out for something which we haven't got, which is done because of dissatisfaction. It wouldn't happen if we were totally satisfied. If we were totally at ease, at peace, completely contented, we wouldn't want to reach out and get anything else. We wouldn't want to change anything. But because we're not, and sometimes we even claim it's because of other people that it's not satisfactory, because we're not, we're having that feeling of dissatisfaction, which is dukkha. Dukkha does not mean tragedy. It is that too, naturally. Tragedy is also dukkha. But tra uh, dukkha is primarily dissatisfaction, not being completely fulfilled, having that little niggling thing in here which says it could be better if, and then everybody has their own personal if list, and then if that if list is ever stroked off completely, one usually makes a new one. There's no end to that. That is not the solution. The solution to all human problems is to see reality as it is and accept it. Buddha calls it the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Now that takes two things. Knowledge, which is what one can impart through books, through talks, and the vision is the inner vision of reality which happens through a meditative mind. It need not happen in meditation, but through a mind which is meditatively geared, introspective. One of my favorite stories is the story in the Teri Gathas. The Gathas are the verses in the Teris where the enlightened nuns in the Buddhist time is about a nun who was just having her lunch 
out of her arms bowl and had finished it. And then she washed the arms bowl. And as she was pouring out the dirty dish water into the sand, she saw this water trickling into the sand and disappearing. And at that moment, she realized the impermanence of all that exists and became enlightened at that moment. So pay attention next time you wash dishes. Huh? It means it doesn't have to happen in meditation, but it can only happen to a mind which has been trained in meditation to be, first of all, one-pointed, so that it is like a very um, finely honed tool that can um, cut through our brick wall of delusion. And it is also a mind which will again and again revert to the three characteristics, the investigation of the phenomena. Now, when she saw this dishwater trickling into the sand, immediately her mind went to anicca, impermanence. Now, when we see the water running out through the sink, into the drain and out, we're happy we don't have to call the plumber. But we're not thinking of impermanence, do we? So this is the difference between a mind which has been trained over and over again to see absolute reality in all phenomena and the mind which is still thinking, like most minds do, in relative terms. This is what the second factor, which I'm talking about, is supposed to help us to bring about. That as we go through our daily lives and have many different activities, that again and again we bring our mind to see is it impermanent or is it giving me full, total fulfillment? Is there a core substance? Is it real? Or is it also just a phenomena which is falling apart and coming back together again? If we put our mind, for instance, to the factor of impermanence, we will probably find that easier. The dukkha aspect, which I'll talk about a little more in a moment, is often debated. People will say, well, I don't know about this dukkha. I'm having quite a good time. I'm all right. I'm all right, Joe. It's okay. What's dukkha? And this anatta, non-self, is often... Um, argued with or um, countered with, saying, yeah, but who is going to wants to get enlightened or who wants to become happy if there's nobody there? Now, obviously, these questions from a relative standpoint are quite justified. From an absolute standpoint, of course, they're not. But because they arise again and again in a mind which hasn't seen the underlying reality, it is very um, beneficial to use impermanence as one's factor of inquiry because it doesn't matter which one of those three one uses having penetrated one one will penetrate all three they are all completely interconnected impermanence 
I've only had one argument on it in 13 years of teaching. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? People will admit that they don't like it, that everything is impermanent. That's fine. Because immediately from that admittance, which is an honest, honest admittance, one can see that one's creating one's own dukkha. If I don't like the law of the universe, which is impermanence, well, obviously, I am trying to be odd man out. That everybody else has the same uh, mistaken view doesn't help anything. Not liking the way the universe operates makes dukkha, which happens and becomes very clear at the moment when something momentous happens, like a loved person dies, or a loved person uh, goes away and doesn't come back, or one loses maybe a limb of one's body or one's sight. These are all things that we want to keep, make permanent. So when that happens, we can see that because we are bucking the truth, we don't want any part of it the way it really is, we're creating our own dukkha. Yet, anicca, impermanence, is the one thing that we can inquire into with um, a lot of clarity, because we can see it within us and around us all the time. Now, in meditation, we can see our thought processes being completely impermanent. We can see our concentration being completely impermanent. And we can even see those pleasant states which arise being completely impermanent. We can see that our feelings are impermanent. And as we take that into us as a factor, <coughs> as a truth, we can then use that same inquiry in daily living. We can see our thoughts being totally impermanent. We can see our feelings impermanent. We can see our movements to be impermanent. We can look around us. Day and night, impermanent, stars, sun, moon, uh, rain, uh, <coughs> clouds, everything is impermanent. Nothing remains, everything changes. Some of it comes back, it never comes back in the same way. We ourselves live this day, fall asleep, come back in the morning, but not exactly the same. Our thoughts, our intentions, our hopes, our understandings are not exactly the same. We come back, but we are not the same. Now, if we can get an inkling of that and we can get a beginning, a foothold in this constantly moving universe of which we are a part, we are stepping on to the noble path. Because this is something, this impermanence, is something we can see with the smallest things and the largest things. And hardly anyone will argue about it. And as we see it, we will less and less reject it. And as we less and less reject it, our dukkha will also get a little smaller because we are no longer rejecting that which is actually happening, namely constant change. Dukkha, suffering, the Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. 
Now, that doesn't mean that he taught us to suffer. It means that he taught that suffering is, but that there's an end to it. Now, that's a nice promise. And it is uh, um, very hopeful and uh, usually misunderstood. First of all, the first misunderstanding which comes is that um, people think, well, the Buddha promised that there will be a time when there will be no problems, like utopia. Well, that's obviously nonsense, because even in the Buddha's time, there were lots of problems. What he promised was that if one practices the way he showed how to practice, that one no longer will ever experience any dukkha, because one will have come to the final understanding of the fact that this person that we call me is only a phenomena and not a personality and not a separate being that needs to be protected, cared for, has its wants and dis uh, dis dislikes, it gets and doesn't get, but is just a phenomena. Now this inquiry into impermanence can very well also be an inquiry at other times into dukkha when there is a feeling of dissatisfaction when there's a feeling of unhappiness when there's a feeling of um, dislike rejection worry and fear anxiety when there isn't complete peacefulness inside most people can do it all the time because most people do not have complete peacefulness inside. It's not something that's our birthright. Ramana Maharshi said, he was a sage in southern India, died about 1950, he said, peace and happiness are not our birthright. Those who attain it have done so with unremitting effort. That's exactly what the Buddha talked about. There's effort needed in order to get rid of our illusion, which creates our dukkha. Now, most people, when there is some <clears throat> unhappiness within, will find an outer cause, which is the trigger. And it usually is, because there is a trigger. The trigger may be somebody uh, is not complying with our requests, somebody is um, gone away who we want to keep, uh, somebody is not loving us, appreciating us, uh, praising us, all sorts of reasons for unhappiness. We don't get what we want, we get what we don't want. These are all reasons for unhappiness. But these are outside of us. They are conditions over which we have absolutely no control. So how are we ever going to get rid of this happiness? if we have no control over these conditions. Other people will do what they want, don't they? And even if they don't want to die, they do. We don't have any good jurisdiction over our own death either. And we don't want to die, but we still do. So if we keep on depending upon outer conditions, we will not find a way out of our unsatisfactoriness, of our unhappiness. We'll have to find that way within. And that means the inquiry again into who am I? This <clears throat> who am I 
was a word that uh, also Amar Mahashi coined, but it's exactly what the Buddha taught. Now, this who am I inquiry is the most important thing we can do for our own peacefulness and happiness. It doesn't mean that we're going to list all our identifications and our name and our uh, achievements and our, all those things. That's not what who am I is. Who am I is the inquiry into finding that within us which we think is unchanging. And if we can find such a thing, the Buddha said, in, look into it and see if you can find such a thing within you that's unchanging. And to find within us a way where the unhappiness which we're experiencing through not getting what we want or getting what we don't want, losing that what we love and so forth, if we find a way within of accepting and inquiring into that which we call me. This is the inquiry into the three characteristics which are manifesting in this phenomena of me. This is our pathway to get rid of dukkha. Because in order to get rid of dukkha, the doorway to liberation is non-craving, wanting nothing, absolutely nothing. Can you imagine wanting nothing, ever? It sounds as if it's boring, doesn't it? But it's not. It's releasing and relieving. Because the wanting is that which creates always the anxiety, am I going to get it? And after I've got it, can I keep it? It's constant dukkha. And the wanting does not have to be material things. It doesn't have to be a new car, a new house, a new refrigerator, anything like that. The wanting can be approval, um, care and concern by others, love from others. These can all be our wantings. And yet, wanting these things over and over, it brings dukkha, because we don't always get it. In fact, we rarely get what we really want. When we don't want anything, it changes into a different perspective. As the Buddha, after having come to the point of not wanting anything, started giving out, just giving. So that wanting, which creates dukkha, is changed into just giving, which does not expect gratitude or results. It's just an action. He was giving the Dhamma. So when we can inquire into ourselves, where do we find that me which wants? Where can we find that person that is um, constantly on the lookout and observing and constantly uh, trying to have something other than what it has? Then we are doing exactly what this second factor of enlightenment pronounces to do, namely, inquiring into the phenomena. Now, we don't have to constantly use ourselves, but it is the best laboratory that we can have. Because we're carrying it with us, it's always there. We can't lose it. We're always with it. And we know this one best. 
but also because we know ourselves in some manner or form, we are used to our reactions. And being used to these reactions, we take them for granted. We have to start analyzing. If we want to make an inquiry into that, into the phenomena of anicca dukkha we have to analyze. Why am I reacting the way I am reacting? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? What is it that I want? Or what is it that I didn't get? Why am I trying to protect something in me? So these inquiries within are, of course, extremely um, helpful to do in meditation. Because when we have a calm and clear mind, which has calmed down in the meditation, the um, ability to see clearly is greatly enhanced. And this is the kind of thing which is done to gain insight in meditation, not what so often is uh, done by people, some problem solving. Problem solving is also a very temporary thing because problems have a habit of reoccurring. In fact, they keep on recurring over and over, and if one hasn't solved it from the ground up, that same problem keeps on recurring over and over, which is an absolute indication that one hasn't solved a thing if the same problem comes. But what one should do in meditation is that one first uses some time to get calm and collected. Now, whatever concentration one has can bring one to a state of either being really absorbed <coughs> or just being able to stay on the meditation subject, or at least getting some peacefulness. Whatever ability one has, or whatever length of practice one has. Having gained that state of some peacefulness, of some absorption, using the clarity of mind at that time to investigate. To investigate to see whether this is a permanent state or an impermanent one. Who is it that's having this state? Is it the same, the same person that didn't have the state? Where is the, where's the difference? Who is it really? Who am I in this case? Now I'm a concentrated person. Now I'm at ease. Five minutes ago I wasn't. So which one am I then? And if I'm all of them, where is the core substance? Where is that which hasn't fallen apart and come back together again? And also at that time, either to see the changeability or to see the unsatisfactoriness which is embedded in all changeability. Now, because everything changes, there can never be total satisfaction because that which was satisfying one moment has changed already. The same by the same token that what was, was unsatisfying has also changed already. But again, it will change. So within that whole completely moving universe, and we know it's always con expanding and contracting, because of all that change, we cannot find a spot that we can say, this is it. Now I've got it. Now I'm going to hang on to this, and that's going to remain with me, and that will be my happiness. Now that can be seen best in meditation. But we do need, as I have already mentioned several times, we do need 
to have the mind in a state of inquiry and meditative receptivity also during our daily living. Otherwise, we cannot expect the mind to meditate properly when we sit down on the pillow. This receptivity that we can have in the mind means that we do not keep our mind chock-a-block with all sorts of worldly, unimportant details. One day we will realize and notice that thinking is dukkha. And then it doesn't mean that we become an unthinking vegetable. It just means that we become a person that has some space in the mind where it can be receptive to realities which are usually overlooked. Because we go in a habit, habitual, uh, re reacting manner through life. We're reacting to that what we see, hear, taste, touch and think and don't give any time or even room for anything else. And there's so much more. If you just think for a moment that a dog, which is quite uh, inferior to a human being in their <coughs> ability to uh, concentrate, you know, their ability to uh, uh, understand uh, philosophy and things like that, but can hear uh, sounds which we can't hear. And a bee can see a color which we can't see. So even this primitive example should make it clear that the universe is absolutely full of happenings and experiences which if we only rely on our six senses we will never become aware of because they are so limited. Even animals have, in some cases, more extensive sense contacts than we have, particularly those two that I've mentioned, but there are others. Dolphins have different sense contact also than we have, with sound vibration. So if we keep on only in this manner that we are now, which is this <coughs> very human, ordinary sense contact way in which we react, we have no chance of getting out of Dukkha. This is bound up with Dukkha. It has to be. But if we realize that there's more that we can become aware of, we will definitely do two things. The first thing is we will try and get attentive concentration, which is the practice of mindfulness in meditation, which I talked about last night which is the practice of mindfulness in daily living. And as the meditation becomes more and more concentrated, we will be able to see with our inner vision a completely expanded universal view, which will take away some of this limited view that we have now. Then, as this concentration comes about and the mind has this ability to delve into depth, there we will also be able to inquire into this personality, the one that everybody is concerned with most. We're always so surprised why other people aren't doing what we want them to do and why they don't act the way we would like it and why they don't 
uh, approve of us and love us and why they don't come around and why don't they, they act in ways which we don't like. But we must never forget that everybody has the same limited view and in this limited view there's only one person that's most important and that's oneself. And naturally, out of this um, wrong view comes all the difficulties that we experience on this globe. There are five billion human beings and they're all only important to themselves. It's a pretty um, dukkha situation, which is what the Buddha said. And this is what we have. All we have to do is open the newspaper and we see what we've got. But that's not good enough. We've got to look in here and see what we've got. We don't have to read it. We have to see it in here. And then when we see what we've got, then we know that there's something we can do. We realize that when we see that this ever-changing phenomena, which we call me, has no real identity, but is part of a universality, then we will see dukkha as a universal phenomena. And it will no longer be our own personal one. And as we see it as a universal phenomena, we will no longer suffer from it. Dukkha is. Suffering is. Unsatisfactoriness is, as long as we're not enlightened. And as we can see that one day, we will no longer be unhappy about it. Because having seen it and accepted it, it becomes just a phenomenon. Impermanence is. We will no longer try to change it, which we can't anyway, but we all trying, all trying to make it permanent, particularly this body and, to, and also other people's bodies. But when we accept it as it is, that's the way it is, then we no longer suffer from it. And as we see the impermanence and as we see the dukkha, we will come nearer to the essence of the teaching. Now, many of the things that the Buddha talked about, we can find in many other teachings, particularly the loving-kindness towards others and such things, also karma. But the understanding of the non-identity, the corelessness, the substancelessness, the non-self is unique in the Buddha's teaching. It goes back to what I said earlier. All the particles are coming together and falling apart. There's not, no core in them. They're just particles. There's only energy. That's all there is. And that's us, not them. And this is the most phenomenal teaching that was ever pronounced as long as we have record of human teaching. Because that, as an experience, takes away all dukkha. If there's nobody there, nobody can have any dukkha. And the impermanence, the acceptance of impermanence, the realization of impermanence, the realization of the universality of the unsatisfactoriness of this state will bring one nearer and nearer to seeing that this person that we are so concerned with and should be concerned with because we are the ones that are trying to see reality, this person is really nothing but those particles in all aspects, physical and mental. 
This is in usually a meditation experience, but it can very well be also an experience which we have outside of meditation, as the example of the nun who washed her arms bowl shows. And there are many examples like that in the uh, Terra and Terigatas, where through the meditative procedure, the mind has become clear enough to see the reality in outside phenomena. So when we walk, we know it's impermanent. When we talk, we know it's impermanent. Everything we do, the only thing that happens is continuity. And this continuity gives the illusion of permanence. Because we went to sleep yesterday and woke up this morning, are going to sleep again tonight and wake up tomorrow morning, we have a continuity which goes through it out the things which have been happening, of which I have been aware and of which I have been a part, which um, have significance in the aspect of our um, religious lives as we live it as women. The religion, the religious life, I prefer to call it the spiritual life because religion is very often denigrated to rites and rituals and does not become a spiritual path. So I would like to say that um, we're talking about our spiritual path and our spiritual practices as we have uh, the opportunities as women and how we have um, seen it in these years, which are years of great change, which is uh, something which is to be um, greeted with uh, great um, joy, because changes are very often uh, something that comes from an expanded consciousness. The first thing that happens this year, of which I was a part and which has significance, was that for the first time in the history of Buddhism, which is now two and a half thousand years old, we had an international conference on Buddhist nuns. This has never happened before, although Buddhist nuns have existed since the time of the Buddha. I was one of the three coordinators. The other two was, one was an American girl who is a nun in the Tibetan tradition, Kamalekshi Somo, and the other one was a Thai woman who's a professor at a university in Bangkok. This International Conference on Buddhist Nuns was held at Bodhgaya in India, which is the place where the Buddha was enlightened. And the Dalai Lama was the keynote speaker. Now, I'm sure I don't have to say to you who the Dalai Lama is. I'm sure everybody knows who that is. And he is by far the best-known Buddhist monk in the world today, and quite rightly so because his personality and his views are such that they are geared towards peace and unity, and he has a personality which seems to um, evoke that. It was the first time I met him. I'd never met him before. I met him at Bodhgaya. And I think I should interject here that the traditional order of Buddhist nuns disappeared 1,000 years ago. It doesn't exist anymore. In this tradition that I represent, 
It exists in Taiwan, Korea, and found to be in Hong Kong. So, and very, very little of it in China. But as a Tibetan tradition, which the Dalai Lama represents, and in the Theravadan tradition, which is my tradition, it doesn't exist. And there's a great controversy whether it can be resurrected. The, the reasons given are maybe not so uh, vital at this moment because all it needs is a bit of goodwill and uh, to do resurrect it. And the Dalai Lama's uh, intention and attitude is, yes, women should have absolute equal opportunities in the religious life. And with care and concern, one can resurrect this um, nun's order. And he gave a, a, the keynote speech at this meeting. There were nuns there from many different countries, I think 26 countries. There were people at the conference from 41 countries. And what was um, established was Sakyadita, which means the uh, daughters of the sage of the Sakyas. Now, the sage of the Sakyas is the Buddha. The Sakyas was his clan. He belonged to the Sakya clan. And he's the sage of the Sakyas clan. And Ditas are the daughters. And we established an international Buddhist women's um, association uh, named Sakya Dita for the purpose of having women of in every country that are Buddhist uh, help each other and help the establishment of the proper nun's order. Now this was a first in the um, annals of Buddhism and it was written up, unfortunately, as it happens so often, by a reporter in the Indian press as a revolt of the nuns. <laughs> we weren't revolting at all. <laughs> we were sitting there peacefully discussing. <laughs> and of course, we uh, were not very happy with that. The, other, uh, the article as such was quite well written. There was nothing wrong with the article, but the heading was wrong. So um, what we then had to do, and it was reprinted in Sri Lanka. And uh, Sri Lanka, of course, the uh, uh, monks are against it, against resurrecting the uh, nuns' order. And uh, there are a few who are not against, but those who count are against. And they give orthodox reasons, which I won't bore you with. And so when this was reprinted in the Sri Lankan press, there was a big uh, to-do about that. So then what we had to do, get other women to write a, a different article with a different heading describing the actual happening at the um, nuns' conference, and then that fell flat with the revolt. The second thing that I was part of, and which is more, um, maybe more significant than the first thing, I was invited to a conference at the University of California in Berkeley, outside of San Francisco. And the conference was called Buddhist-Christian Dialogue. And it happens every three years, it seems. This is the first time I was invited. And uh, since they paid all expenses, the trip and everything, I naturally went. <laughs> and um, it was an eye-opener for me. 
I must say that um, as old as I am, I learned a lot. The Buddhist-Christian dialogue was primarily, of course, concerned with the trying to make a bridge between these two major religions. As far as I know, there are 500 million Buddhists in the world and 600 million Christians. I may have my figures wrong, but this is what I read in an atlas. So it would seem that it is very important in the world today that these two uh, religions have a manner of a dialogue where they can understand each other. And at the conference, one could find most of the famous people who are writing, teaching, and uh, are scholastically in, involved with either one of those two religions. I have to admit, without being at all ashamed of it, that 90% of their language that they used went by me like that, and I couldn't understand it. They're using a very um, a scholastic language, which I'm not used to. And one time I actually challenged it. And um, the other women who were in the audience afterwards admitted they hadn't understood a word either. <laughs> because I was listening to a talk which was called Kenosis and Sunyata. Now, sunyata means non-self in the Buddhist terminology. And so when I inquired what kenosis means, I was told that means the same thing. And I thought, oh, wonderful. If they're talking about the same thing in Christianity and Buddhism, I must go. So I went. But it was a Christian a speaker, a, a theology professor. I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to repeat anything he said. So when he was finished, I said, have I been listening to Christianity or to personal views? And then he turned around and he said, well, they're personal views, but it, it's relevant to Christianity. But it, I'm sure it is. I have no doubt that it, that was right, what he was saying, but it was impossible for me to understand. And all the women sitting around me then out, went outside, <coughs> when we went outside, said they didn't understand it either. <laughs> now, there were 12 plenary sessions, which means the evening talks and uh, they were uh, held in a huge hall which held about six or two eight, up between six and eight hundred people and out of the twelve plenary sessions the women were given one and in each of the other eleven there was one man speaking <coughs> ten of them were by no sorry nine of them were by scholars two of them were by monks. In the one session that the women were given, we were four. So each one of us didn't have an hour like they had, but we each had 15 minutes. And we raised the you and cry about it. We said, oh, you're getting four for the price of one, no? And they, they accepted that. They accepted it and said they would do it differently next time. The other three who were on the panel with me were theology professors. Um, our moderator was also a theology professor, 
I was the only one that didn't have any letters behind her name at all. We had been talking, we were having a dialogue between the, the women who were on the panel every day with spectators, <coughs> or not spectators, with listeners, who also joined in. Now when it came to our, uh, by the time it came to our evening talk, which was towards the end of the conference, we all knew each other fairly well. We were two Buddhist women and two Christian women. The other Buddhist woman is, is, woman is Rita Gross, who is a theology professor at a prestigious university in America. The other one was myself. And the uh, Christian one was, one was Ursula King, who is um, a professor of theology in England, and uh, Rosemary Rutgers, who is uh, the best-known woman, uh, also a theology professor in America. So we had two Christians, two Buddhists. And the, the, uh, I was the last one to speak. And they were giving their... They had discarded their papers, which they had been using every day in those dialogues we were having every day, and they'd thrown them away. And uh, they were speaking just from the heart. And uh, what came out made me say as my opening sentence, well, I'm actually very glad to hear that my Christian sisters are having the same problems we're having. Well, everybody thought it was funny and laughed, but I meant it very seriously. Because what came out of it was that in the Christianity, the difficulties that the women are facing are exactly the same as in Buddhism. And the uh, difficulties which they... Uh, uh, described were not only the lack of ordination as ministers, which is of course one problem and a very strong problem for those who would like to be a minister, but it was also that as they themselves, as, as professors of theology, had found it extremely difficult to get tenure at their universities, whereas the men were ten years ahead of them were and not half as well known as the women were. Now, this ordination as ministers, which is uh, so uh, controversial in most of the Christian uh, denominations, is a matter of choice. I mean, not everybody, I don't know that anybody here wants to be a, ordained as a minister in, uh, in Christianity, but if somebody wants to, the choice should be open. And uh, the uh, whole aspect which was very well put by Ursula King was this that if there is a um, discrimination because of being a woman, where not the women are suffering alone, it's all of us are suffering, men alike, because discriminating against someone else is naturally a um, negative state of mind. And it, should, it, will, be, it will be to the uh, detriment of the whole world and not just of half the world, which women are half the world. And she was saying, and this was one of the probably um, most, um, the best uh, um, consolidation of the thoughts that had come out, that she felt that now, at the end of this century, that we are becoming more and more aware of this difficulty, because uh, spirituality is part of human life which should never be neglected by anyone. And if there is as we find it in these two major religions and naturally in all other religions also, that there is this um, dichotomy of uh, discrimination that if we can find a way to overcome that, that this would 
be a great um, hope and uh, a great um, advantage if we go into the uh, 21st century and are maybe able to live together in an entirely different manner. No more the hierarchy of up and down or higher and lower, but really togetherness, which would, um, from the religion, spread out into the uh, life uh, itself, office, um, household, wherever. And as this is a possibility, because people are now honest and are saying it, whereas before one felt it but didn't say it, these possibilities exist. The, uh, we have had many difficulties with religion in the past. Religion has always been a very important aspect of human life, and because it has been so unsatisfactory to most people, so many people have left their own religion, have left their own churches, have left their own temples, and say, well, this doesn't give me any satisfaction. This is not, uh, they're saying things, but they're not doing them. This is hypocritical. And in the extreme youth of today, we find more and more either a dis, uh, an avoiding of religion or fanaticism. Well, neither one will do. From the Buddhist standpoint, now Ursula was, was from the Christian standpoint. She said this from the Christian standpoint. Uh, from the Buddhist standpoint, Rita Gross has written a very interesting paper, which I have here, um, and which she sort of barely touched upon because we only had 15 minutes, so what can you say in 15 and 14 minutes because we had to leave time for the moderator. Um, <laughs> and this paper is Buddhism and Feminism. And because she has been a feminist before she became a Buddhist, now for me it's the other way around. I was a Buddhist first and finally became a feminist. <laughs> out of sheer self-defense, I think. <laughs> but I think I took, I've taken the easier path. For me, it's easier, I think. But she was a feminist first, and then a Buddhist. And she's a practicing Buddhist. She's not only a professor, she's also a practicing Buddhist. She's a um, student and a pupil of uh, Chogyam Trungpa, and has been practicing meditation for many, many years. I'm not sure how many. And she was saying in this paper, and also in her talk, that feminism needs Buddhism to help it to become gentle because feminism is often angry and harsh and uh, when it becomes angry and harsh people turn away from it they are already angry enough themselves they don't want something else to be angry about and naturally this was always my idea about it too so it needs the Buddhist understanding of uh, gentleness and that anger does not produce anything on the contrary, it just produces more anger. And we have already so much anger in the world that we should never add to it. But that Buddhism also needs feminism because feminism is honest and shows up difficulties which exist in the feminine sphere. So the two can join hands and help each other. And her paper is extremely good and very... Um, uh, explicit. I can't, uh, you know, tell you all about what is in there. Um, she shows up many areas where the two can help each other because a consciousness raising 
which is feminism's uh, stance, is of course also Buddhist stance. It's a consciousness raising. And uh, the anger which has existed in feminism has given it a detrimental value, not a helpful value. So as we, as our practitioners of meditation, we naturally have to eventually become aware of the fact that anger only hurts ourselves. Now, with the actual fact of the difficulties that we are facing, we have two, and I'm only going to talk about those two religions because I'm sure these are the two that concern us. Um, there is Islam, which is even worse, <laughs> and uh, there is uh, Hinduism, which is uh, uh, different, very different. Um, so we'll talk about um, Buddhism and Christianity. Both are patriarchal in the sense that their founders are men. In Christianity, there is, I must say, and I don't know that much about Christianity, um, a redeeming point, because uh, Jesus' mother is deified. She is also uh, considered to be um, a godlike and is being prayed to. In Buddhism, we don't have that. Now, the Buddha is also not a god and is also not being prayed to. Uh, he's a teacher. But his mother was the founder of the nun's order. And she had to be, was his stepmother, but she brought him up. Um, but according to our records that we have, and which are supposed to be the exact words of the Buddha, and I leave that open to doubt, she was to take on, when she wanted to become a nun, she was to take on the eight, what are called the eight Guru Dhammas, the eight heavy, um, uh, meaningful vows, one of which is, and this is a real stumbling block, one of which is that any nun, no matter how long she has been a nun, must bow down and pay reverence to any monk, even if he has only been ordained one day. I think that's the downfall of Buddhism in the West. <laughs> and, mind you, naturally Buddhism is coming to us from Asia. And in Asia, in the countries in Asia where this tradition is practiced, this is taken as, and I'm going to say it in those words, as a gospel truth. This is the way it is. Now, if that's the way it is, I think it is surprising that we've got any Western nuns at all. We do. We have a few. Not many. I, I'm guessing. I don't know. But very few. And it is a real stumbling block because it puts a connotation on the female Sangha uh, order. Sangha is the order. The order of nuns and monks. Of inferiority. Well, shall I tell you how I personally have coped with that? I don't feel inferior. It's very simple. I don't, I don't have any feeling of inferiority. I have no feeling of superiority either. I just, I'm just there, that's all. And if I'm supposed to bow down, I bow down. 
it makes no difference to me. But it's not a good advertisement, I think, for something that is new in the West, um, new and very much in demand because of the meditation practice. Now, meditation is something that you can do whether you're Buddhist or nothing. I mean, it doesn't matter whether one is Christian, Buddhist, Jewish, Hindu, Islam, uh, or doesn't believe in anything. Anybody can sit down and meditate. I've been teaching meditation since 1975. And naturally, when I teach meditation, I also, at the same time, teach the Buddhist uh, words as they apply to changing our views and attitudes so to become peaceful and happy. Because that's what we all want, is not to be peaceful and happy, as we should. We should want that and we should become it one day also because it's the only way of really having a life which is worthwhile living. So the Buddha's words are there. So naturally, within the context of learning meditation, which so many people nowadays do want to do, and this is lovely that they do, and which was not practiced and taught in Christianity in such a uh, direct manner as it is being taught in Buddhism, um, we have at the same time the Buddha's teaching. Now the Buddha's teaching is also extremely useful. It is not only useful, it is analytical, it's logical, it's rational, it um, shows an exact guideline how to do it. One of my uh, friends always says I'm very good at giving recipes. It's a real how-to um, path. And this is what most people want. This is certainly what I wanted when I started. I wanted a how-to. I had read this and I had read that. I had studied um, uh, Ramana Maharshi, one of the Indian sages, for years. I had been in India. I had uh, uh, tried then. I had tried all sorts of things. But nobody gave me a how-to. Here we have a how-to, how to do it, how to put it together. And that was fa what fascinated me and eventually came to the point of becoming a nun. Um, now, the difficulty which we are facing is not only the fact that we are supposed to be subservient to the monks, but that we don't even have a proper order. So, I mean, we're in the same boat as the Christian uh, who, don't want, who are not being able to be ordained as ministers. The Christians have a proper nun's order, at least that much. And within that nun's order, they have their rules and regulations which vary from whichever denomination they belong to. But I have, for instance, met in, where was it, in Indonesia. I went to a Carmelite nunnery. Somebody insisted to take me there. And I was very glad I did because I met a nun there who'd been there 25 years. She only looked 25, but she appeared, she apparently was 45. <laughs> and uh, I asked her about her practice, and she told me about her prayers. And I questioned her about it. And it was her prayers and the resulting uh, results of her prayers were identical to my meditation. So only she called it prayer and I called it meditation, so just words. It was the same thing. And uh, her day was extremely disciplined. Uh, they only talked um, one hour after lunch with each other, otherwise they were silent. 
and they worked very hard in the vegetable garden and in those things and uh, prayed for many hours every day. I think there, I could say with um, uh, truthfulness that their day was far more disciplined than our day. And uh, she looked extremely happy and uh, very peaceful and very beautiful. And uh, I asked her, you know, it wasn't necessary actually to ask her, but I did ask her whether she was that, what she seemed to be, uh, happy, peaceful, and like that. And she said, certainly. So, uh, and she'd been there for 25 years in that same place. And she was a Dutch woman, was not an Indonesian woman, she was a Dutch woman. So we have that uh, similarity, and because the nunneries in the Christian tradition are far more organized and better organized than we are, um, they have uh, far more uh, members than we have. Now, I'm talking about Western women. There are about 2,000 nuns in Sri Lanka. There are about 25,000 in Thailand. There are about that many in Burma. There are maybe 5,000 Tibetan nuns. These are all Asian nuns. There are at least 50,000 in Taiwan and um, maybe that many in Korea. But these are Asians. And I don't think we can expect any help from our Asian sisters. None at all. They are taking the status quo and are hoping nobody's going to rock the boat. It is, um, I mentioned that also at the conference, it is um, partially due to the fact that <clears throat> the patriarchal society in Asia is still intact, whereas we are rocking the boat in the West. And um, they're not feeling quite as secure anymore as they used to. But in Asia, it's still intact. And um, because of that, naturally, we, we can't expect that in the religious community anything else is happening. It's exactly the same thing. Coupled with that is economy, economical hardship. Now, I only know Sri Lanka well. I don't know the other countries well. I've only visited them. I've visited Korea and uh, I have uh, met the Tibetan nuns that are in India, but I don't know well about these places. But I know Sri Lanka well, been there for nine years, and um, I've made it a point to get to know a bit about the nuns' situation there. And most of them are economically um, underprivileged. So naturally, if you have a hard time trying to get your next meal, which may not be exaggerated what I'm saying, you're not going to think about equality. You're first going to think about your next meal. So if any change is going to come in any of this, it will have to come from the West, and it is coming from the West, naturally. But again, the, um, the change that has to come has to be one which is in accordance with spiritual principles and not a violent upheaval, because violent upheavals don't do any good to anybody. Somebody's always going to get hurt. Now, my personal view on that is this. Every person, male or female, has two sides to them. 
which are supposed to be the two halves of the brain. One is supposed to be the female side and one is supposed to be the male side. And the female side being on the right, the male side on the left, the left side controlling the right side of the body, the right side of the brain controlling the left side of the body. Now, traditionally we think of the female side within us as the um, feeling, the nurturer, the emotions, the caring, the concerned. And the male side as the logical thinker who can think in rational ways and uh, lineal thought. All of us have both. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't always follow that every female has more of the feeling and less of the thinking, and every male has less of the feeling and more of the thinking. But for the purpose of talking about it, it can be generalized that also due to our upbringing that the females are more in touch with their emotions, whereas the men are more interested in thinking it through. This is a generalization that doesn't apply to everyone naturally. But we can use it as a, as a model at the moment. Now, if we know ourselves to be more emotional, more in touch with feeling, we are also in danger of emotionalism going overboard with our emotions, which is not unknown to most women. And that clouds our thinking capacity. Now, when we have that, if we know that about ourselves, I'm not saying that every woman has it, but it is not uncommon. So if we know this about ourselves, if we have examined ourselves well enough to find that in ourselves, then our next step would be to let, to purify the emotional aspects so that the clarity of thinking arises so that we can stand on our own two feet with our rationality and our logic. Which, for instance, Rita Gross is a perfect example in this paper. She certainly has the feel of a meditator, but her rationality and logic is impeccable. And if we want to make an impression on anybody, I think rationality and logic will have to be impeccable, but never at the expense of our feelings. Now, on the men's side, naturally, they, most men, I don't think that's exaggerated. Maybe I should say many men. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't counted. <laughs> um, need to get in touch with their feelings and stop this, all this rationality because they're never going to get cut through. The rational thinking cannot cut through because we react to our feelings. So the first step on that side will be to get in touch with the feelings, realize what they are, and work with them. Now, I've been teaching, as I think I've had since 1975, I've had just, no, not just men, but I've had many, of course, um, men students. Um, I think I've probably had more women students, but I've had many men also. And I've seen in many of them a great change by getting in touch with feelings and being able to express them, which was a total novelty for them. And this is not um, uh, dependent upon the age group. Any age group uh, is the same. The, uh, uh, yes, anyone, any age group. 
So if we can see it like that, if we can see ourselves as the potential for a totally balanced being on both sides, male and female, which means also that we become independent from trying to lean on anybody else, independent from trying to have the uh, assistance from anybody else. We are complete within. I'll tell you something that the Buddha said about men and women. Neither one of you are going to like it. <laughs> he said this about women. He said they are like creepers trying to find a strong tree on which they can get a hold and, and hang on to. <laughs> and men are like crows um, strutting around trying to look for their own advantage. And both sides have to get rid of those uh, character qualities. The women shouldn't try to hang on to anyone else and the men shouldn't try to find their own advantage which somehow or other uh, fits in with our feeling and thinking so that uh, we can become complete in ourselves and be independent. Independent does not mean that we are insensitive or that we are um, indifferent. Not at all. It's not the same word at all. Independent just means that we are complete within ourselves and that we have a certain feeling of security and self-confidence with which we can go forward rather than feeling inferior or superior. Feeling inferior is an ego trip. Feeling superior is an ego trip. Both of them are useless. And of course, naturally, not being fully enlightened, we all have our egos <clears throat> and we have to work with them and live with them. But we mustn't think that any one expression of them will give us any advantage. The only advantage that we're going to get is if we can actually work on ourselves. Now, if we can do that, and any practitioner, any meditator, will do that sort of work on themselves, whether male or female, we may have a possibility of um, conferring with people who are interested, just as a Dalai Lama is, who is an Asian, who is a monk, who is in a situation where he is, uh, um, has to um, adhere to five, well, he hasn't got five million subjects now, but about five million subjects, um, he still comes out quite clearly that he wants to see a unit, an inequality in religion in religious practice. If we can cultivate and develop ourselves to this point where we are secure within, where we can have the rationality and the logic which is necessary to make a point, and still have the feeling which is necessary to be a human being, then we may be able to get together with those that can help us to make it a, a um, the, make a religious life arise in which this dichotomy of male and female is no longer uh, uh, of importance. Now in Buddhism, those of you who know a little bit about it will know, others may not, the essence is sunyata, non-self, anatta, 
non-self. Now naturally, being male or female is identification. I'm identifying with being female, I'm identifying with being male, which is the exact opposite of non-self. Because the identification process supports self. I am mother, father, son, brother, uh, friend, lover, husband, wife. It supports the ego uh, delusion. So if we are really practicing on this path, then that ego delusion needs to be also um, scuttled and done away with. So anyone who insists on it has to remain is certainly not on a spiritual path. And I've also studied, and I'm going to be finished in a few minutes, <laughs> Meister Eckhart, who's very dear to me, and also St. Teresa of, of Avila. And both of them are Christian mystics of the Middle Ages. Both of them were renounced by the Church. I don't know what happened to poor St. Teresa, but I know that Meister Eckhart still has not been accepted back into the Church. Both of them, and particularly Meister Eckhart, teaches and preaches the non-self. There's absolutely no doubt that he teaches exactly what the Buddha taught, never having heard of the Buddha, because in those days communication and media were not existing. So in Christianity we can see exactly the same trend of practice, namely to get rid of this thought of me and mine, and if the Christians use the word um, not my will be done, but your will, thy will be, thy will shall be done. In other words, lose my own um, self-willedness and go into the uh, feeling of what God wants me to do. Now, when Meister Eckhart preached that, he was considered to be a heretic. He was considered to be one who was um, disfiguring the uh, religion. And he was preaching exactly what all mystics of all ages, of all religions, have always found. That the only troublemaker in the world is the self-delusion. Me and mine. And if we are talking about spirituality, this is naturally the pathway we have to take. And we mustn't then, if we're feeling that we're getting the short end of the stick as women, not come out with more self, I want, I must have, I want to get, but rather, let's do it together. Let's not have division. There are many things afoot which seem to point in that direction. The dialogue that we had at Berkeley is one. There are many other meetings and conferences where this is talked about. There are many books now, written, um, many, more books than ever before, written by women on spiritual topics and also about that we have women teachers. Now the feminine spirituality has of course as its root the feeling aspect. Whereas the male spirituality 
very often has as its root the thinking process. And there we get a completely different approach on exactly the same matter, unless the male, like Meister Eckhart, is a mystic, which means a highly developed meditator. Now, Master Eckhart didn't call it meditation, he called it contemplation, but it's exactly the same thing. So when we have that feminine input into a spiritual path, we must can see quite clearly that this is one half of a whole. Naturally, we need thinking, but naturally we need feeling. So that input of ourselves, of the women on a spiritual path and in religion, is absolutely essential and is everywhere recognized. And yet, there's still not the outer possibilities given to them as they are sort of behind the scenes. Now, for instance, in Sri Lanka, on any given uh, holiday, if you go to a temple, a Buddhist temple, you'll find 300 women and 10 men, any time at all. If I give a meditation course in Sri Lanka, which is a Buddhist country, I get 30 women and 6 men, always, no fail. So, the, and, and when you come to, um, now in the West it's a, the proportion is better. I get more men in my courses. <laughs> um, when you have a, a meeting and uh, things are to be arranged, it's usually, practically always, the women who do the arranging, who serve the tea and the cookies, and uh, the men who are having a conversation, no matter where you go. In Christianity, you don't find women are arranging the uh, um, altar. They're not. Uh, they're singing in the choir, but they're not to be seen and visible. These are outer manifestations, and. Without anger, without any revolutionary ideas, no revolt, it is, I think, a very necessary aspect that the visibility of the women should be enhanced and that their contribution should be more acknowledged. And I think that women have to do that. We must not wait for somebody else. And this is my personal credo, and I'll say that, and then I'll stop. I realized from the very first that in this particular occupation that I have chosen for myself, there was nobody who's going to help me. I had to help myself, and I did. And it um, works very well, and it's appreciated. But, and I wasn't angry at anybody. I just did what I thought was necessary to do. And I feel that women are very often at fault by not helping other women. Now, feminism has changed that, but then not every woman is a feminist. I never have been until I went to this conference. (laughs) But there is a necessity for the awakening in the minds of women that the visibility, the, edit, the uh, um, potential, the uh, um, possibilities for women should be made clear and that they should be done without anger, without uh, revolution, 
because just by doing it, that's all I've done. I've done it, whatever I thought and whatever I could. Whatever I was able to do, I just did it, and I didn't ask for permission. And I think that might be an important point. There's nobody to give me permission. Nobody gave me permission to come here and talk to you. I just came. <laughs> That's all. And nobody gave me permission to go around the world and, and, and teach Dhamma and meditation. I just do it. So, um, and after people find out that it's useful, then they want you to come back and come again. <laughs> so I feel that this might be an idea that I like to leave with you. If you want to see, and the men are in exactly the same position, if you want to see more of an um, equal distribution where the feeling and the thinking can work together on a, on a level of equal opportunity, sounds like a political statement, <laughs> <laughs> then one needs to be the one who does something. We, needn't, we can't wait for it. Nobody's going to do it for us. We are the ones that are alive right now. And if we have within us some spiritual urge, and